welcome to Cooking with Medicine, where we try to make medicine as simple as possible, but not consider that. I'm one of your co-hosts today, Karachi Gumadzi, and we are joined by my other co-host, Efosa Honbaum. So today, for our listeners at home, or wherever you may be, we're going to be talking about a very important surgical emergency, one that you should never, ever forget or rule out, because it can lead to very disastrous consequences. I've seen many registrars and MOs get into a lot of trouble for not being quick enough with this diagnosis. We are going to be talking about necrotizing fasciitis, which is a surgical emergency. So broadly speaking, necrotizing fasciitis is defined by permanent destruction of your subcutaneous tissues as well as your fascia overlying your muscle. It also has systemic signs of toxicity, early organ dysfunction, and like I said, a high mortality. So you don't want to miss it. You should always have a high index of suspicion and you need to treat it very aggressively. So the risk factors for this life-threatening condition include essentially immunosuppression. So patients with type 2 diabetes or type 1 diabetes, HIV, cancer, or those who are receiving immunosuppressive drugs as those used in organ transplantation. Other risk factors also include recent surgery as well as recent trauma, especially that that which penetrates the skin. In addition to what you just said before with the surgeries, specifically abdominal and perineal surgeries are a very big um, risk factor for developing necrotizing fasciitis. If you have not had that much contact with necrotizing fasciitis at your clinical practices, which Ifosa just told me he hasn't had that much, where I've seen quite a lot of it, you may also know necrotizing fasciitis as flesh-eating bacterium disease, which it's referred to quite often in movies and cartoons, I dare to say. But yeah. I think maybe TV shows as well. I think, if I remember correctly, seeing an episode of that, like similar on House many years ago. Oh, did you on the House? Yeah. One of the cases that I've seen, um, this was about two months ago. It was a 29-year-old male who came in, so known IV drug user, also with an Epstein anomaly, not on treatment, so this wasn't significant. So now he came in with a 10-day history of a septic left hand. The story that he gave is that he works as a mechanic and is pricked by an old copper wire on the left thumb. Initially, the pain was not too bad, but then it developed quite rapidly and that um, resulted in him presenting to hospital. On examination, his vitals were still stable at the time being. Clinically, CVS exam, respiratory exam, abdominal exam were all normal. Local examination of the left thumb showed swelling, erythema, there was a one-by-one centimeter abscess on the left thumb, which was draining pus. He also had pain on passive stretching on the thumb. The x-ray showed no signs of anything such as an osteitis. We're going to leave out the investigation for now. plan was for the patient to be admitted on triple antibiotics and for deridement as quick as possible. In terms of the signs and symptoms of necrotizing fasciitis, Farai has mentioned quite a few emanating from this case. Initially, the patient on history might even report a minor trauma, such as in this patient, which subsequently spread because that's how the infection is introduced. Essentially, he's um, presented with severe pain, erythema, edema. One could also find crepitus if it's a gas-forming organism that is the causative organism in this condition. Sorry to interrupt you, Fosam. What you just mentioned now, the crepitus, that's a very important clinical finding which was not found in this patient, but is frequently found in general with necrotizing fasciitis. And is almost a telltale sign that, that there is necrotizing fasciitis present. One of the other symptoms for I also mentioned with regards to the pain on passive stretch is also a sign indicative of a compartment syndrome. 
which also indicated the urgency for the need for debridement in this, this patient. If one were to open up or if there was an open wound, as mentioned, or one could put pass their finger through, if it was a large enough wound, one would be able to easily slip their finger in between the skin and subcutaneous tissue and the muscle fascia, the different layers. And one would obviously also find like a lot of pus and necrotic tissue once removing their finger. That's also been referred to as the glove finger test or finger test. Other symptoms that you can also find, which this patient didn't have at the time of examination, where the patient can be pyrexial, they can have a tachycardia, they can also have malaise, myalgia, diarrhea, anorexia, or hypotension. The symptoms for I just mentioned now were actually essentially signs of a systemic inflammatory response syndrome, or SIRS, or overwhelming sepsis. And obviously this may lead to organ dysfunction and the complications of sepsis. We already told you that we admitted them for necrotizing fasciitis, but in general, that's not good enough. When you see the patient at first presentation, you need to have a way of, di- of making the diagnosis. The diagnosis for necrotizing fasciitis is made on clinical grounds, like the ones that Forza has just said. There are no reliable invasive or radiological investigations. However, in addition to these clinical signs, you can use a Lernick score to make a provisional diagnosis. A Lernick score, if you have a score of more than six, has a positive predictive value of 92%. Sorry, Farad, just can you just explain for listeners what the Lernick score is? I believe it's an abbreviation. So Lernick stands for Laboratory Risk Indicator for Necrotizing Fasciitis. So this is a score that was developed to distinguish between necrotizing fasciitis from other things such as severe cellulitis or an abscess. When you use it, it's basically when you have a concerning history or physical exam. So things like your pain out of proportion, rapidly progressive cellulitis, or your surgical emphysema. Or you can also use it kind of as um, a way of ruling out necrotizing fasciitis when you have a patient with an unconcerning history. And this can be a way of reassuring you. So the different markers that you're going to use in your learning, learning score is your CRP, white blood cell count, hemoglobin, sodium, creatinine, and glucose. So with your CRP, if your CRP is more than 150, immediately that's four points. White cell count, if it's less than 15, then that's zero, zero points. 15 to 25, that's one point. More than 25, that's two points. Your hemoglobin, if you have a score of more than 13.5, that's zero. If it's your hemoglobin is 11 to 13.5, that's one point. If it's less than 11, that's two points. Sodium, less than 135, two points. Creatinine, more than 141, that's two points. So I think these last two are more when you're having a signs indicative now of organ failure, specifically renal dysfunction. Then your last thing that you want to look at is your glucose. And if you have a glucose reading of more than 10, that's one point. With this, if you have a score of more than six, then the positive predictive value of this is more than 92%. So you're almost one, almost 100% sure that this is necrotizing fasciitis that you're dealing with. So now we've got that an almost definite diagnosis of necrotizing fasciitis. So now you're going to feel more confident about taking the patient to theater. When you pay, take the patient to theater, this is where you can make your definitive diagnosis. So when you take the patient to theater, what you're going to be looking for is dishwater pus coming out. This in addition to necrosis of your fascia, as well as your subcutaneous tissue, and depending on how far, as well as how far the condition has progressed, the skin as well. In terms of the pathophysiology of necrotizing fasciitis, as mentioned earlier, our risk factors were recent abdominal or perineal surgery, 
as well as trauma, recent trauma, or in, in fact, IV drug users also a risk factor, which I forgot to mention, which Farai actually noted is a characteristic of his patient. But in essence, any procedure or action or event that could introduce bacteria through the skin into the underlying tissues. So that could be through venipuncture, through IV drug use, through trauma, surgery, in an at-risk patient, especially those who are immunocompromised. There's various types of necrotizing fasciitis. Type one is essentially polymicrobial infection. Type two is essentially associated with a group A hemolytic streptococci. And type three is, is gas gangrene necrotizing fasciitis, which would be associated with Clostridia species. But essentially, there is invasion into the from the skin into the underlying soft tissue and fascia of these bacteria, which rapidly proliferate in a symbiotic relationship. Sometimes it may be that there's a staph infection or a streptococcal infection initiating the infection, but then what? And many times there may be other bacteria and organisms that essentially are part of the symbiotic relationship. It's kind of like a I scratch your back, you scratch mine. Let's grow together and enjoy this wondrous well-vascularized tissue that we have at our disposal. That's also why you tend to find that the muscle underneath the fascia is not affected by the necrotizing fasciitis, unless it's a very, very advanced disease or very aggressive. And that's because the muscle is very well vascularized, whereas the subcutaneous tissues and the muscle fascia is not as well vascularized. That's right, Farai, especially in the presence of relative tissue hypoxia and certain things such as trauma where there's interruption of blood supply or surgery, especially when you're cauterizing certain parts of the vessels in the subcutaneous tissue when you're trying to avoid blood loss, there's a relative tissue hypoxia. It's not completely hypoxic where the skin is going to die or those tissues will die because there's complete hypoxia, but compared to the rest, and a lot of organisms thrive in such conditions and grow and multiply quite rapidly, then obviously this will stimulate a systemic inflammatory response. The immune system responds. There's a migration of polymorphonuclear cells or neutrophils to the area which release cytokines and it's just a vicious cycle because a lot of the time the inflammatory process itself more than the replica rapidly replicating bacteria is what actually causes the tissue necrosis and damage and then this obviously travels along the fascial plane rapidly spreading and can obviously become quite fulminant resulting in multi-organ dysfunction as, as the SERS response um, rapidly progresses, multi-organ dysfunction, hypotension, and shock, and eventually can lead to death. I just wanted to also touch on the various complications of necrotizing fasciitis. I briefly mentioned just now death, which is the one we want to avoid the most, renal failure, septic shock with cardiovascular collapse, loss of limb, and as well as toxic shock syndrome. So these are just a few of the complications involved, which has a high morbidity especially if someone has to lose a limb or multiple limbs or their life for something that could be preventable. So broadly speaking, when it comes to the treatment, you first want to find out what condition the patient is. So now this is a patient that you're seeing in recess and now the surge response has hit. You're going to have to first resuscitate them. So your, that's your ABC, importantly, your fluid resuscitation. You want to start your antibiotics, IV antibiotics very early. Like we said, it's triple antibiotics. If the patient is stable enough, then you want to get them into theater for emergency radical development. 
So, like I said, the threshold for taking a patient to theater is very, very low for necrotizing fasciitis. If you have a learning score of more than six, then you definitely are rushing them to theater. In addition, I did mention the theater findings that you would get, specifically the dishwater pus, but you can also find liquefied subcutaneous fat, muscle necrosis, and venous thrombosis. With your debridement, you want to go past the margin of your infection because you don't want to you don't want to miss out on on an already advancing infection because then the necrotizing fasciitis can then progress further and this can lead to, like you also mentioned, the complications down the line of things like limb loss, toxic syndrome, and possible death. When the patient has left theater, you want to continue them on the antibiotics. You want to start them on the definitive treatment will depend on what you get from your debridement that you're going to send specimens for to the lab. But you initially would start on penicillin, clindamycin, metronidazole, and aminoglycoside. Why are you starting on those things is because, like Fossa mentioned, in his classifications for necrotizing fasciitis, you have your three types, but most commonly is your type 1, your polymicrobial, which occurs in 80 to 90% of patients. Within this, the polymicrobial infections, four to five of these are, are aerobic organisms and you have at least one anaerobic organism. So you need to have cover for all of these things. This patient may need, is most likely going to go for debridement multiple times. In general, hospitals like to take patients for up to two redebridements. So in total, three operations at least to make sure that all of the dead tissue has been removed. Some hospitals tend to do hyperbaric oxygen chambers if an anaerobic organism is identified, but I've not seen this. And if the need arises, you may have to amputate part of the patient's limb, and you should have a low threshold for this. In the case of the patient that I presented earlier on, this patient ended up having an amputation of his left arm. Yeah, that's quite hectic, right? I do not wish that on my worst enemy. To, fin- to wrap up the treatment, you obviously want to make sure that you have dressings for the patient, reviewing the wounds every day. Most likely, not all the time, but... The risk factors that the patient may uh, may have, such as your diabetes, your HIV, you want to get those under control. If they are IV drug users, it's very important to get them help because there's a very high chance that they're going to continue and this can happen all over again. Just before we move on to our last point of the episode on prognosis, I just wanted to ask specifically with your patient, Farai, in this case that you described, did he or show any signs or do you feel that he is may have stopped using IV drugs, or do you feel like this is a turnaround point for him, or was a turnaround point for him, or just maybe based on your interactions towards the end of his hospital admission? So it was a funny story because I think we had two or three necrotizing fasciitis patients overlapping at the same time in the hospital, in our in our orthopedic wards specifically. And there were also a lot of other IV drug-related and diabetic-medicated conditions, cellulitis, those sort of things that were all being treated. And I don't know what it is, but that specific period of, I think, three weeks, there were a lot of patients who were IV drug users, specifically using Nyope or just smokers, and they all formed like a brotherhood almost. There was another patient who was actually allegedly the supplier, so I don't think (laughs) that this patient stopped at that moment in time. I think it was going to, yeah, he still needs a bit of convincing before he stops. I guess in some cases, once you're in, you're in for life. Yeah, exactly. 
So as described throughout the episode, one can note that necrotizing fasciitis has quite a serious illness and has a quite a, a staggering prognosis. Prognosis has been reported to range from 20 to 80 percent. Sorry, I didn't mention that that 20 to 80 percent is a mortality rate. Whatever way you look at it, one in five versus four in five people could die, whoever has a necrotizing fasciitis. The literature reports that prognosis is directly linked to how early surgical intervention is, is, is initiated. So the quicker you can get the patient to theater, the better the outcomes. So I think that's, I think, essentially the key point in this episode. Early diagnosis and recognition, as well as early surgical intervention. I think that's all we have from our side as 15-Minute Medicine. Thank you so much for listening. We hope that you enjoyed this episode. If you have any comments about this episode or any future episodes you'd like to hear, you can comment on our Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter pages of 15-Minute Medicine. And let us continue to make medicine as simple as possible. That's not